Welcome to the Onassis Air Conversations. My name is Mirto Katsimicha. I'm a curator and cultural worker based in Athens and your host in this series of recorded encounters with the participants of Onassis Air. Founded on the principles of learning and doing with others, Onassis Air is an international research residency program in Athens initiated by the Onassis Foundation in 2019. They say that what happens in one place stays in that place. I cannot find a better way to describe all the things that have been happening inside the Onassis Air House since I first entered as a participant of the Critical Practices program in fall 2019. The truth is, it is not easy to transmit an open-ended process of relationing which is very personal and relevant to a specific place and moment in time. How can I then give you a glimpse into that process? Everything starts with a conversation. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with the Onassis Air participants to shed light on their artistic practices and needs, as well as to reflect on ways of being and working together. Today, I'm having a conversation with Margarita Pita, a freelance lawyer, mediator, and social artist based in Athens. In parallel to her practice in law, Margarita has worked as a creative producer for numerous participatory arts projects spanning from community arts and cultural integration to research and management. She's the co-founder of Movement Lab, a safe space for physical theater, laboratory training, and movement-based projects against gender-based violence. Margarita is a participant of the School of Infinite Rehearsals Movement 5 with a collective research focus on the notion of self-organization. In this conversation, we start from the intersection of art and law in her practice to discuss the issue of self-regulation and the role of negotiation within self-organization. Margarita, welcome to Palirum. Hi, nice to meet you again, Mirto. And Margarita, thanks a lot for joining me today. Um, I'm going to start this conversation with uh, a very simple question. You are a practicing lawyer for almost a decade now, specializing in cases of private and corporate law, and you're also actively involved in the cultural sector through your collaboration with cultural and civil society organizations. And I would like to start this conversation by asking you, where do these distinct practices meet for you? This is a very interesting question and a question that I have been exploring for all the decade that you described. Um, to go a little bit far back, um, I need to tell you that these fields were fields that I have studied and practiced from the beginning in parallel. So this question has always been in my mind how to bring them together. It's not a very easy uh, venture to, to go for, but... I do think that as time passes by and I get more involved, particularly with self-organized groups, this is something that has shown that there is a field that can be common. We always have in mind when we think about law, about regulations, about very strict order of uh, doing things. And in many aspects, this is actually true. And in many aspects, this sort of informs the way that we think as lawyers. That's why there is this stereotype that lawyers have a very narrow perspective of reality. They go by the book and there is a very specific way of thinking. However, this is also not true, especially when we are talking about Greece. That, of course, 
legal procedures are very specific, but at the same time, there is a field for imagination, if you want, even though I know this is a bit of a, a bit of a controversial statement. However, since everything is sort of an improvisation in this country, I would say that imagination plays a vital role, even in the legal field. Now, in terms of self-organization and civil organizations, the important thing for me is to actually see the practice of some of the basic rights, the right to association, and how this is practiced, not necessarily through the legal framework, but what happens in real life. And this has always been an interest to me. This is how most of the groups that I work with operate, trying to find ways of governance, trying to find ways of legal existence, but more importantly, existence in a social context. And these are the things that particularly interest me as well in my research and my practice in both fields. It's interesting how, um, on the one hand, you work with law as the system of rules that regulates the actions of its members. And on the other hand, you also work with uh, for self-organization, let's say. So what draws you to self-organization? As I said before, I, I have a deep admiration for, uh, for law as, as a premise, not necessarily the legal um, systems and the institutions that we have, but as a premise, law is something that I, I respect as, a, as an idea, as a notion. However, it can be quite stale if this cannot be practiced and cannot be furthered through its practice and through the messiness that comes from self-organization groups. In any sort of other environments, in corporations, in groups that are more formal, there is a tendency of formalizing all the context that goes around decision-making processes and everything that sort of regulates the relationships between the members. But when it comes to civil organization groups, exactly because of this beautifully creative messiness that comes with bringing together so many diverse people usually for goals that are either creative in a performing arts group or in an artistic group or in philanthropic ventures like uh, non-profits, uh, other NGOs, etc. For me, the interesting thing is how all these contracts and all these principles that people decide on are actually get to practice, how conflict is resolved when it arises because it always arises and how this is progressed and is pushing this idea of the legal language to everyday practice. There is a very broad um, field of, of freedom within uh, creating different self-organized groups. And for me, it's always interesting to see how this freedom is used and how this freedom is progressed and what are the different applications that lead to, to the goals that the groups have in mind. I'm thinking that you're bringing a very interesting perspective in in the discussion about self-organization because when um, when we talk about this theme more broadly, one would um, one would think that a self-organized group is a non-organized, unorganized group. So through your research, but also through the work that you did here as a group, it seems to me that you're um, exposing all, all these procedures that are necessary for a group to organize, actually, even if that is a self-organized group. Uh, I would like to go back to the School of Infinite Rehearsals and ask you what prompted you to apply for the school. First of all, the theme itself was something that I wanted to explore in this uh, particular framework, the self-organization. 
mostly because my interest in any procedures that have to do with self-organization groups and these contractual relationships, let's say, is the part before, during and after these uh, formal procedures, which is the negotiations. For me, negotiations is the, the key to pretty much every relationship, whether it is a relationship between two people or five people or a group or a corporation. It's a key practice for everyone, not only to understand where they're placed within a certain group or society, but also is a tool for for each member to be empowered as a personality, as a self, in order to, to create relationships that will last and will be continuously negotiated in the future. And since we're speaking about uh, negotiation, one of the very self uh, characteristics of a self-organized group is the way that um, the group makes decisions together. So I wanted to ask you what kind of decision-making processes um, did you adopt and if you managed to negotiate in the end? I'm going to be a little bit provocative with this question as I, I feel that it's not a necessarily very very um, accurate in, in the way that is put. It's not about whether I managed to do negotiations because negotiations happens all the time. Like at the moment that I have, let's say, a desire to do something or a need to do something and you don't share this desire, we have a negotiation going on. Whether we are aware of it or not, this is a different story. Whether we actually put intentionality in it in order to find common ground or not, has to do with a lot of different things. And it's a decision that we need to make, whether we make it being self-aware or not. So in that sense, negotiations happen from day one, from, hi, my name is Margarita, your name is Mirto. What is it that we would like to explore? How we would like to go about it? Imagine this as a dance, like in a dance, there is always this idea of two people or more dancing and creating a distance, coming together, going further, but all dancing in the same sort of tune if they want to create a piece together, let's say. So negotiations is something that happens. If, um, if I had some opportunities to introduce some of my practices, I did, not in the, the way that I was preparing beforehand, and that was also very interesting for me. Because in my mind, I, I started this uh, research thinking that the way to create a common language and a common ground is to do a workshop to the people about negotiations and uh, how it works and uh, mediation and different practices and games, dilemmas, all of these things. However, this didn't seem to be something that was very relevant in, in the sense of the flow of how things were developing. So I decided instead, instead of trying to sort of interrupt this flow, to just introduce some of these tools whenever it was possible. For example, I one of the things that I consistently did in, in the game format would be to introduce small elements that I use uh, when it comes to participatory decision-making processes, and in particular this uh, method called Art of Hosting that I am also using in other contexts. I would introduce elements like a talking piece or a large question that needs to be somehow broken down in smaller ones, or trying to make it personal, or trying to connect this with my other practice that is more physical. It's a, this idea of having physical conversations that do not necessarily answer the questions that we may have at stake, but exploring what is it that we need in order to connect with one another before we get 
to decide or discuss anything. So it was interesting because for me it was like it was a continuous workshop, a continuous lab, more than a workshop, that I could and I could not introduce things. And this also reminded me of um, the presentation that you did at your space, Movement Lab, and this exercise that we did together where uh, perhaps you can explain it a bit describe it a bit better than I will but basically we were divided into couples and we were exchanging the role of the of the listener and the what was the other the role? storyteller the storyteller correct and um, in in one round the one person became the storyteller so um, by attaching by not attaching finding a balance between the two hands the storyteller would guide the other person to um, a fictional trip and then they would exchange roles and at the end they would become storytellers and listeners at the same time. So it's about how we establish communication with the other person that we have in front of us and I found that really, really... um, um, It really affected me, actually. I'm really, really happy to hear that. It's uh, one of my favorite exercises, this one. And I think one of the most interesting in terms of the things that manifest without talking about it, it's one thing to talk about establishing contact with another human being, and it's a different thing to actually embody this connection even for five minutes. There is a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, practices that I, I love introducing in these uh, participatory processes that I'm working with, of course, not all contexts are open to that. If I go and, uh, you know, to a civil uh, organization that doesn't really have any of this background, this will be something that they will be very uncomfortable with, maybe. This idea of having physical contact with people that you don't know. However, personally, I think that it's very important whenever we enter any sort of negotiation and any sort of conversation, because this is essentially what we did at Movement Lab, it was a physical conversation, and that's why I kind of insisted in setting the framework of this, as we have a storyteller and we have a listener, and your job, your task as a storyteller is to tell your story, but as you tell your story to be aware if your listener is actually following you. It doesn't make any difference to the world if as a storyteller I tell a story that nobody cares about. And at the same time, as a listener, it doesn't make a difference if I don't actually put myself in a position of commitment to give space to someone else's story and listen. And in that sense, like even something as simple as uh, touching palms and moving together in the space becomes an experience that embodies this essence of listening, of telling a story, and at the same time, understanding if I am a good listener, if I am a good storyteller, if the other person is a good listener, if the other person is a good storyteller. So it's like all these different layers and dimensions that I don't think there is any other way to perceive them at the same time other than the body. And in Movement Lab, this is exactly what we are doing. It's a space that is a, a laboratory. It's experimental. It's not so much about performing or about showing um, the work to the audience yet we do have our openings but more than anything is this space where you can explore your physicality where you can reclaim your own body your own self not in a self-centered way but rather as this idea that we are complex systems and whenever we get 
to any sort of communication with anyone in a professional context, in a personal, in a social, in a political, we carry this with us. And the more that you explore your own system and other people's system, the more sustainable, let's say, the, for the, you know, the use of this uh, word that is like a buzzword, but the more sustainable these things are going to be. And it's exactly the same thing with all this idea of negotiations before you enter a contractual relationship. This is the playground, the negotiations, the physical exploration. And I think we need to play more as, as humans and as political beings. But it's also about establishing a, a connection and a contact beyond language, which for me is super relevant since um, language can be a form of power, especially within a group where um, for most people English is not their, their uh, first language, for example. For sure, for sure. This is, a, this is a way that people can connect a lot. There is a, there is a place that we can learn so much about each other. And uh, for me... This particular residency was uh, illuminating in this particular perspective. And this happened uh, through a common experience with another one of the residents that uh, uh, we, we did this uh, workshop of hugs, which was something that in my culture is very normal, let's say, to hug people and have this physical interaction. While in his uh, culture, hugs was something that is out of context and is not something that is practiced regularly. And it was very interesting the way that we went about it and we did this small like five minute workshop on a daily to see how the hug and the experience of a hug develops without communicating verbally, but just experiencing this uh, physical proximity was something that uh, blew my mind. It's uh, something that really gave me a lot of thoughts and work to develop my own practice. Well, thank you for sharing that. Unfortunately, I didn't have the chance to receive a hug. I don't know, I, I must have <laughs> missed it, but maybe we can hug later. And I wanted to bring up the Care Manifesto that was one of your first collective readings that you did together. And I stumbled upon a quote that, by Judith Butler that has a lot to do with what we have been talking about. Um, where she says that only once we recognized our shared entanglement in conflict along with its powerful corollary and awareness of our shared vulnerability and interdependence, we can begin to develop new caring imaginaries on a global scale. So it's about living in difference or with difference. During these seven weeks, how did you see your individual research path merge with the collective one that you took upon as a group? It was very interesting for me because my um, my topic had to do about uh, this idea of uh, perceiving the self as a as a society as a collective system that has to do with the uh, of course um, the body but also the mind and the different thoughts and the feelings and the trauma and the social experiences and the family and the cultural context like everything that the self is created by including all these non-human systems like the bacteria or the microbiome or all these things that somehow live in the same body that I live or you live or each one of ourselves live. And in a way to find this space of negotiation with all this before I get to relate with other collective selves. And this is something that stems from my interest of uh, psychology 
And for me, I just wanted to, to sort of uh, create this question about whether we as a systems can negotiate with other systems, having as a prerequisite that we sort of self-regulate, we, so, we sort of self-determine all these systems that happen in our bodies before we enter in a conversation with another one. And uh, as I was thinking this, it was a very conceptual thing at the beginning, and it happened during the pandemic. Um, of course, because, you know, uh, viruses uh, are particularly rich in that uh, sort of context. But uh, at the same time, uh, while this was happening, I was not aware that uh, I have a, a, an autoimmune condition, I have celiac disease, which was something that has to do exactly with this idea of the microbiome and the different uh, sort of organizations that live in the same body. And the interesting thing about the practice is that because we all gathered around the kitchen and that was something that we did a lot, cooking, this is something that came very early into our collective research because there was no other way for me to be fed uh, <laughs> safely, which was actually a very rich gift that was given to me by the collective because this idea of collective care as we read about it in a manifesto or as we analyze it in a conversation is something that got practiced again and again every time we had a meal. I had people coming to me and asking what would be safe to eat if I could help in order for me to feel more safe with these people deciding not to go to a specific restaurant because I wouldn't be able to, to have some food safely. So while we were discussing this, I was in the privileged position, if you want, to actually experience that and progress in this idea of accepting the care because a lot of times, especially in our line of work, we talk a lot about collective care, but we talk a lot about collective care as the carers, as the people that provide care to our groups, to individuals, mutual aid groups that, again, we are in a position of power and privilege and we care for other people. And sometimes this can be easier other than receiving care ourselves. So in that sense, reading the Care Manifesto and understanding these differences that have to do with the biological uh, structure of our bodies in this particular uh, situation was something that not only expanded this idea of care for all of us, I think, in the group, but gave a face to vulnerability, gave a face to this um, idea of interchanging roles of caring and being cared for. And that was uh, one of the most valuable things that I took away from, from the care manifesto experience, if you want. <laughs> and as a group, did you have um, a specific research focus or how did you work together during these seven weeks? I think care was uh, manifested quite early in our conversation. And it's interesting because we had two main topics that all of us had as common things to explore. One of them was care and the other one was conflict. And it was very interesting because they are not exactly on the opposite spectrum. In my opinion, they are actually in the same spectrum because this idea of finding conflict and allowing it to exist and allowing it to breathe and get in the, in the conversation or in the negotiations is one of the highest expressions of care. We usually, as people, especially if we have managerial positions or if we are um, managing projects, uh, organizing, we have the tendency to want to jump into solutions whenever a conflict arises. And for me, this is something that uh, takes away from the potential 
or transformation, whether this is a social change within the same group or something that has a broader um, impact in, in life or society. So in that sense, the idea of allowing conflict to exist and allowing bad feelings and allowing messiness and allowing all of these um, things that can dilute the group was something that brought us together. We did not uh, always have the same uh, opinion about things, but it was a very self-aware moment whenever we made a decision, whether somebody liked it or not, and whether they would make the decision to compromise or to to take one for the team, let's say. Um, I have to add here that I also believe that um, you managed to explore the concept of conflict from different perspectives, because as far as I remember, there was one person in the group that had a completely different understanding of conflict in uh, in a collaboration, or actually he mentioned that he had never experienced conflict before. So the way that perhaps in Europe or in the Western world, the, the, the way that we perceive conflict is quite um, site-specific, I would say. You're absolutely right in this. Um, there is a lot of uh, thoughts that come mostly from negotiation theories about uh, the correlation between negotiations uh, practices and conflict resolution tactics, as we call them, depending on the culture and the cultural context of the of the conflict. And the theory suggests some stereotyping that, of course, is to be taken with a pinch of salt, but there might be some value into, into these stereotypes. And they talk exactly about this idea of having individualistic cultures that tend to be more individualistic when conflict arises. And then you have, namely, this is, according to the theory, more towards uh, the US model. Then you have this Germanic uh, sort of context that's they sort of uh, seek refuge in um, in the rights and things that are considered to be axioms, like regulations, like laws, things that everybody sort of believes in. And then you have the more um, Asian and the, um, like uh, the, the context that have to do more with this idea of collaboration, that whenever conflict arises, people sort of tend to sacrifice their personal desires and needs for the, the better, for the common good. There is a lot of interest in that, of course. Uh, however, now we live in a globalized world, so a lot of these are very relative as stereotypes. I do think that, um, like, based on, on the very limited experience that I had with, uh, also with one of the participants in the group, coming from Indonesia, the perception of conflict was totally different, but also the level of tolerance was totally different. So I think there is a lot of interesting things to, to research in that. But there is also an overarching thing about this innate human trait of um, creating conflict. I think that it doesn't really matter where you come from and what is your cultural background. This is something that is there as, an, as a human thing, as a human element. Of course, the cultural context is the one that smoothens it out or not. And it's interesting in developing and sort of applying the, the practice of mediation or negotiations in different uh, types of, of context. But there is something about conflict that is universal. And this is, for me, the most interesting place. And being a person that I, I enjoy conflict in, in, in the sense that 
I do think that it's only through the chaos and the instability and the disorder and the conflict and the violence in many cases that things can change. So for me, it's more important to find places where conflict is okay to exist and it's okay to explore what comes out of the conflict in order for a bigger change to happen rather than try to position it in a cultural background where it exists or it does not exist. In order to further explore this notion of self-organization, you decided to go on a trip together in Pilion. There were a lot of ideas and concepts about it, but not knowing the reality outside of a city, this was something that we couldn't predict. So it took a very long time to, to choose a place. I think in the end, Pilio was um, just a, one of these places that was considered to be the most, one of the most beautiful places in Greece, where a lot of the production comes from some particular things like chestnuts and uh, also Larissa, that is a, a valley where a lot of food comes from. And food played a vital role in our, in our research. It turned out to be an excellent opportunity for us to, to spend time together and spend time in nature in a way that informed a lot of our conversations. We did a, a very beautiful um, mushroom hike. We picked up uh, different mushrooms. We cooked them together. It was in a very beautiful spot. All of this idea of getting in touch with a different network. And of course, for us, it's also a delicacy. But this was something that opened up a conversation about the mushroom world and about this idea of network and the networks with nature. And I don't think it could have happened in any other place because what happened in Athens is that we got very much into this mechanistic approach of things. We want to see 10 initiatives. We want to talk to another 10 groups, 10 artists, this, that. We need to plan, make schedules. So in that sense, going to Pili was like a ritual. I, I think that um, the way that you describe it, Pillion gave you the opportunity to uh, enact your imagination in a way. Yes, for sure. Enact your imagination, but also sort of a practice this uh, need that most of us had for a breather outside of the what we, we ourselves had expected from this uh, residency to be. Because we came in with a proposal And this proposal informed a lot of our decisions. But when we went to Pilio, it was like a ritual. We broke this, uh, this flow that we thought was the, the proper one to follow. And we went somewhere that was so overwhelming. All the stimuli that we had, the nature, the beauty, the stars. We saw one of the most beautiful uh, skies that I haven't seen you know, in my life in Pilio. All of that was a very beautiful thing. We also pushed a lot of our personal boundaries by jumping in a super cold water like uh, after rain at 8 p.m. or, you know, doing a lot of things of trust and exercise that had to do exactly with this. And I think this is what was the glue for us to work together longer and to create these relationships. Well, um, I would like to thank you for sharing all these uh, experiences with me today. I'm curious to know what's next for you now. There is a lot of things that are <laughs> are coming after that. Um, there is a lot of things to unpack for my my personal research. Of course, the first thing that I'm going to do is go back to Movement Lab and uh, find a way to take these practices and put them in the next project. We had a project that they were working on that had to do with vulnerability that started uh, through lockdown. 
using theater practices mostly, but also some uh, martial arts uh, practices. Um, I'm definitely going back to our project, the Fightback Club, which has to do with uh, gender-based violence and how we can self-protect and self-learn, uh, self-defense against that. There is a lot of programming that needs to happen around these conversations, uh, especially the conversation for vulnerability. And now that I have uh, all these ideas and the practices that came after the residency, I have my legal practice that I'm also, I need to go back to. And hopefully one of the practices that have started at Onassisair will continue to be part of the conversation in this community that has been created. Margarita, it was a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for sharing. Likewise, thank you so much for doing all of this and for being part of this community. Thank you for listening. If you want to listen to more conversations, please subscribe to our channel. You can find more about the UNASSA residency program and each participant at www.onassis.org. This series is produced by UNASSA. Thanks to Nikos Kolias, the sound designer of the series, and to Nikos Liberis for providing the original music intro theme. <laughs>